if you think of any solution uh, or any any policy that would be created uh, to tackle air pollution, it it almost always involves data. Welcome to the Berkeley Earth interview series. Berkeley Earth is an independent, California-based nonprofit focused on environmental data science. Berkeley Earth supplies comprehensive open source, air pollution data, and highly user accessible global temperature data that is timely, impartial, and verified. Our findings have been featured in peer-reviewed scientific journals, UN climate reporting, and in leading global media outlets, including the Washington Post and the New York Times. To learn more about how you can support independent climate science, visit us at berkeleyearth.org. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Berkeley Earth Interview series. We are thrilled to welcome our guest today, Dr. Krista Hazenkope. Dr. Hazenkope is a recognized global leader of making environmental open data accessible, interoperable, and actionable. With 17 years of experience in air pollution, social good, international development, and open data spaces. She's formerly the co-founder of OpenAQ, an environmental tech nonprofit that works directly and indirectly with governments across the world to make air quality information more openly accessible. She is an evangelist for efforts that improve public health, fight air inequality, and open up data in efficient, equitable ways. And you can also find her on her own podcast series, Degrees of Freedom, where she discusses the possibilities of scientists exploring wider spaces. We are thrilled to have her with us today to discuss the importance of air quality data. So let's get into the episode. So welcome, Krista. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Uh, So let's just jump in. Um, Go ahead and tell us a little bit about your work and sort of how you came to be an advocate for sort of air quality and open data in this really interesting space that you've come to occupy. So I first came to doing air pollution work a little bit from a roundabout direction. Uh, I have a PhD in atmospheric science. And as I was ending my degree, uh, I was looking to shift my focus. So what, what I did my uh, PhD on was actually pollution of a sort, uh, but on an entirely different um, planet. <laughs> it was a moon of uh, Saturn called Titan. It has this beautiful oh, wow. orange haze. And uh, if you were to actually look at it under a microscope, it, it, it has essentially the same uh, pollutants or, or the, the shape of the pollution uh, looks the same as you would find it on a photochemical smog on Earth. Um, so it was very interesting, but I, I was looking once I got my degree to, to do something that impacted, uh, people here on earth, uh, a little bit more directly. Uh, and so I was looking around, looking around, I happened to go to a, a talk by, uh, this guy from a n- nearby college and he showed a picture, uh, from a, a trip he got on to Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, the capital city of Mongolia. Um, and there was just this thick haze, not unlike what you would have seen on Titan, uh, but here on Earth. Uh, and and uh, it really, it made an impression. The talk was not at all about air pollution, but I just saw this, this picture and I started looking into what's air, the air quality like on in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, realized there wasn't a ton of research on it, um, yet it, it did have some, uh, what was known was that it did have some pretty uh, off the charts air pollution levels. Um, and that got me really curious. So uh, long story short, I, I ended up building a uh, 
postdoc of sorts that um, took me there for two years to to study the source of the pollution, what uh, the, the characterized the pollution, um, and and uh, I li and lived there as well. And um, what really actually um, drove me to care so deeply about air pollution uh, was not so much the research I did there. To be honest, it was uh, living there and walking through. Um, the air pollution in the wintertime and, you know, tasting the air pollution. I, wow. I, yeah. I, I'd seen the data, but I hadn't seen quite the, I hadn't experienced uh, air pollution like that. It really uh, changed, changed my focus. Um, and while I was there, I got involved with a lot more uh, community-focused work uh, and noticed to our south in China that the Beijing embassy, the U.S. embassy in Beijing, I put up an air quality monitor on their roof and started tweeting out that that data. This was around. Um, they started doing that, I believe, in 2008. But this was around 2011, and uh, there was a huge impact uh, across China with that data. We saw that from Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. We set up a similar, uh, much smaller scale effort at the National University of Mongolia with colleagues, and uh, also had a fairly outsized impact for the size of the project in terms of uh, garnering national attention. Uh, my Mongolian colleague was called into parliament to talk about the role wow. of science and data. And that, that really, that changed everything for me. Um, so I cared so deeply about air pollution, but this was actually a tool I saw that really had a strong impact. So I found something that I was very, I, I cared deeply about and I believe really matters in terms of its impact on public health across the world. And there seemed to be this really low hanging fruit, um, this way uh, of, getting people galvanized around the issue in a way that um, uh, hadn't, hadn't really caught fire in a lot of other places, if you will. Wow, interesting. And then you also were the founder of an organization called OpenAQ, which really dealt with the data elements of this whole air pollution conversation. Maybe you can just talk a little bit about your work with that organization. Yeah, and really the seed of the idea for OpenAQ came from those experiences in, in Mongolia um, and then later on uh, through some uh, other experiences with uh, the public health community around air pollution in different roles. But essentially OpenAQ aggregated air quality information uh, across the world from largely government sources uh, and, and now uh, many uh, other sources as well. Uh, but essentially it provides the data in a very raw and transparent way. It makes no judgment on the quality of, of the data itself, um, but it, it just, it shares what say a government is sharing. And so um, what this allows people downstream from the data to do, uh, to essentially uh, uh, build tools and do analyses uh, that, that then can take a life of their own. So um, what we saw at OpenAQ were, I think there was uh, around a hundred publications from academic articles that had um, cited the data in, with people taking it in different directions, media articles, um, various uh, apps and other, other tools that helped visualize the data and help the public engage with the information. So really we saw this as a portal that opened up the ability for other, many other types of groups to take the data and run. Yeah, that's great, really impressive. Uh, let's talk about this phrase you've mentioned called air inequality. Um, a Forbes article actually claimed that you coined this phrase. And I think it's a really interesting phrase because we hear so much about, I mean, wealth inequality, obviously, and we hear a lot about climate refugees. Um, 
you know, in the context of sort of public health with these issues, but we rarely hear about air pollution being framed as air inequality. And I'm hoping you can maybe talk a little bit about that and kind of how you came up with that phrase and, and what that kind of looks like. What is air inequality? Um, you know, what is, why is this something that we really need to be paying attention to? Yeah, the, I think something that I found shocking when I uh, was first, very first getting, uh, getting acquainted with air pollution issues was just the sheer impact globally on on mortality. I mean, it causes 3.4 million deaths every year. 90% uh, of the world breathes unhealthy air, according to the WHO. Wow. Um, and this is disproportionately uh, affecting those in developing countries. Um, and so air inequality is meant to capture this unequal access to clean air to breathe across the world. and and. You can think of it from a country level, country to country level, where there's where there's major differences in the air quality we breathe. But it also exists at a at a sub city level, a block by block level in the United States, for instance, uh, where under resourced communities uh, are, are correlated with uh, worse air than uh, richer communities. Uh, so air inequality is meant to capture that, and the reason we wanted a term that uh, was specifically focused on air pollution was. We, we think the, the issue is large enough and that there should be a specific focus on, on um, air pollution issues uh, itself. Uh, and I think sometimes because air pollution is not something um, that you can often uh, feel the effects of directly, mm. um, it, it can go under the radar. And so this is meant to draw attention to, to the, the issue itself. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, you know, and speaking about kind of what a big issue this is and bringing attention to it, I, I think something that's really interesting about your work is that it seems to exist at this really crucial intersection of data and air quality data, specifically with public health. And I think, you know, we, we know that air quality and air pollution are sort of inextricably linked in many cases with emissions. Uh, and specifically with burning fossil fuels and greenhouse gases and things like that. And we hear so much about minimizing emissions in order to eliminate greenhouse gases and we decarbonize so that we can, you know, uh, mitigate the effects of global warming, but we really kind of hear less about the relationship between emissions and air pollution, uh, just kind of on a media, you know, kind of global conversation level. And I'm wondering, just in your opinion, kind of why do you think those issues are so siloed sort of in the, in the general conversation? you know, maybe what's kind of the, some of the opportunity to open it up and combine them? Yeah, I, I think, uh, I think there's, I thought about this a bit of like, why, why are these dealt with as such separate issues? And, and I, I, my guess, my thought process has been that, um, you know, when uh, a tailpipe emits carbon dioxide on the other side of the world, um, eventually you will feel that the effects of that CO2 everywhere. It has yeah. to do with the lifetime of CO2, uh, whereas air pollution is is a bit more local. Um, you so if you if someone's experiencing really poor air in Delhi, um, you don't necessarily feel that in in New York directly. Uh, of course, if you aggregate the the impact of of air pollution across the world, it it is huge. Um, and the the uh, World Bank came out with an estimate that uh, it costs the world $5.7 trillion a year in global GDP, 5% of wow. roughly 5% of the uh, global GDP in um, 
money for, due to outdoor air pollution issues uh, alone. So, so there is a huge impact. We just feel it indirectly. Um, but I, I think that the local versus uh, global uh, acuteness of the issue is, is partly why they're treated as, as separate issues. And um, I do think it would be uh, very strategic, uh, much more efficient, since, since often um, when you tackle one, you're tackling the other from the same source. Uh, if they were dealt with uh, together. Uh, I think sometimes when you don't do that, there can be unintended side effects where you increase pollution or perhaps increase uh, the release of greenhouse gases if they're not dealt with um, uh, on the same wavelength. And I think the other issue that comes up with this is funding. I think um, sometimes climate change versus air pollution are treated as separate funding pots and, and uh, that's For to sure. the detriment of both. <laughs> I would say a little bit more yeah. towards air pollution just because there's just less funding globally uh, around that, but it's, I think it would just be more efficient to, to tackle them together. For sure. Just off the top of your head, do you know if there's any examples where they are being tackled together, any particular projects or regions where they're managing to address both at the same time? You know, I, I don't know of large scale plans where these things are being dealt with together. Um, I would love to hear, hear of other examples, but not one comes to the top of my mind. Yeah, that would be great. That would be great to see that. You mentioned that air pollution can be hyper-local. And, and one of the articles that you published recently through the World Economic Forum called Closing the Data Gap, um, a cost-effective way to improve air quality, uh, you discuss in this piece how a simple $10 million investment in certain types of sensors could have such a significant impact on improving air quality. And when we hear numbers like 5% of global GDP, you know, is, is impacted by, by air quality issues. I mean, $10 million is a drop in the bucket. That's really a relatively low threshold for funding for something that could have such a profound impact. So, and you, you know, you mentioned the funding issues with, with global warming versus air pollution. Maybe speak a little bit about the funding and investment landscape for solutions and technologies around air pollution, and maybe what are some of the obstacles uh, to getting some of these solutions implemented? Yeah, so the, the Clean Air Fund, uh, a foundation based in the UK, recently did an analysis where they published that uh, there was about $32 million each year invested globally by foundations in air pollution efforts. Um, so that's, that's 30 million. 32 million with an M. Yeah, 32 yeah, okay. million uh, with an M <laughs> from all organizations okay. uh, globally. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's extremely underfunded relative to the size of the problem. It's like a factor of 100,000 100, between um, the, the cost of global GDP versus what foundations are, are currently investing in the problem. Wow. Um, wow. And so, so that, that sort of sets the stage. Uh, and obviously, that's, that's an issue. What this also means, it's a big opportunity uh, for investment where you can make a $10 million investment and you can have an outsized uh, impact. And I think that's like, more specifically really true where, when it comes to data gaps. Um, there's huge data gaps across the world. Uh, you can see this uh, when you look at Berkeley Earth data or the map on OpenAQ, for example, uh, across Africa, uh, Central Asia, large swaths of Central and South America. Um, where if you, if you put in a, a single reference grade monitor in a country, 
um, we it would have an outsized impact that we've seen in other countries across the world, and it's not prohibitively expensive, um, and it would be it would be a, a dramatic increase in in um, the data availability across whole regions. What we often see um, is something similar to what uh, the the Carnegie um, public library program did for the U.S. in at the turn of the 20th century. So uh, in this program, uh, for those not familiar, it's essentially Andrew Carnegie funded the, the infrastructure for building public libraries in small towns across the U.S. So um, they had to have meet a certain level of um, uh, ability to support that library over time, but if they did, uh, they would get funding for this for this library. And what this did was created um, a mass number of public libraries growing up uh, across the uh, the U.S., but not just from ones he founded. It created a, a desire and expectation that if you're a small town, you should have your own library. So it, it sort of fed into itself. And I think once you what we've seen is when there's a, a new data source across uh, a region, other countries also want to um, have uh, generate their data as well and share it. So I think it creates this need for data. And I think, you know, a $10 million investment in, in reference grade monitors in countries that don't have one um, could have a similar, similar effect. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, $10 million is, again, it's, it's such a relatively low threshold. You mentioned that having these certain reference grade monitors can lead to improvements. Do you have a specific example or a case where the monitor was included and, and there was data generated and the air quality issue was handled and resolved? Yeah, there's a few, there's many places you could point to. I think the, the most, the brightest example is that example from China. Um, you know, year on year for the past few years, there's, there's a significant improvement in uh, PM 2.5 or fine smoke and dust pollution uh, levels in, in, for example, Beijing. Uh, there's a recent paper uh, in the National Bureau of Economic Research that came out looking at this very thing of how there was a correlation between, there was a, uh, studying the, the growth of uh, open air quality and actually, I think, water data um, with improvements in uh, the environment. But this is very visible in China in that um, the, the, that monitoring data and some, um, some amount of Chinese air quality data that was being put out um, spurred this, this um, mass interest. So journalists started accessing the data and doing reports on it. Um, that led to a, a, a journalist doing a, a long documentary on air pollution that spread a ton of attention under the dome in, in China. Um, there's apps that developed that would pull this real-time data in and all of a sudden millions of Beijingers were looking at real-time air quality data for the first time. The air yeah. was the same, but the, their, their access to that information uh, provoked a different response and um, created this, this desire for um, the creation of policies and implementation of those policies that, that um, push for cleaner air. And I think, I think the, the broader thing though that, that I feel very strongly about is that if you think of any solution uh, or any, any policy that would be created uh, to tackle air pollution, it, it almost always involves data, like some access to, to what is the air quality in the first place. That's the thing you're looking to fix or address. And if you don't have that basic information, you really can't even begin to do that. So I see it as this absolutely necessary underlying infrastructure that you can't go wrong building, uh, no matter what your actual local solution is to, to the issue. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, on the funding horizon, maybe what are some of the opportunities that you see for high impact funding in the space? Where can people be most effective? 
um, when they're looking at trying to fund solutions around air pollution? I think the, the question to ask that I ask myself and, and when considering what kind of funding would be most impactful is what's the scalable infrastructure that supports common needs from community solvers globally? I think, I think that's, that's the key. I think, um, uh, like I said, there's no um, bullet, you know, uh, silver bullet for, for solving air pollution globally, uh, but, but, there is, but there is a silver bullet for infrastructure. Uh, that is commonly needed from place to place. So I think- And you know, just to clarify, this, oh, sorry, mm -hmm. just to clarify, when you say infrastructure, tell us more about that. What is, what is that that you're referring to? Yeah, so it can be things like data generation uh, okay. and, and access in, in data gap places. Uh, so sort of this, this basic need for uh, being able to produce data and to share it. So um, sensors and, and yep. hardware that goes into that. Okay. Yep. And, and then it can be software that does, you know, quality assurance uh, that, that um, a, a given uh, organization shouldn't have to reinvent these, this, this exists and it um, shouldn't be something someone has to create from scratch. Um, and I would say another sort of common infrastructure need is technical capacity building um, in, in doing that data generation locally, not, not having um, say scientists come in from uh, elsewhere and, and generate that data and share it, but actually local capacity building to do that. And then the third thing that I think is often overlooked is, um, and we found a lot of uh, power in, in, in OpenAQ in holding workshops is, is convening local groups uh, to who, who are various actors working in the space already um, and having them engage with one another and figure out what's the low hanging fruit and being a neutral party in that, like letting it uh, genuinely organically uh, evolve to where uh, a group groups can find ways to work together. And, and a quick example is, um, for example, we were in uh, Sarajevo uh, holding a open AQ workshop. It, this is 2017, and we had a uh, someone who was an activist uh, on air pollution issues and another person who worked in public health uh, in the government. And it, when they originally came in the room, they were completely um, at loggerheads, they didn't see each other on the same side at all. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, over the course of the workshop, uh, they came to actually see that they were really coming from the same place. And um, practically what uh, evolved from it is they uh, organized the entire group to write a statement on um, what was needed in Sarajevo and Bosnia to advance air pollution issues. So this community statement that they then uh, uh, presented in part to the Bosnian parliament. So. Um, it was really powerful getting those two people on the same page and, and it didn't require any, um, you know, they, they didn't need information from us. They just needed a space, a neutral space to uh, convene together. So I think that's an often underlooked um, uh, piece of infrastructure is just convening existing groups. And I, and I would say all three of these things, the data generation, the technical capacity building, convening local groups, um, this is scalable infrastructure that again, I think requires an investment, not a huge investment, but an investment where um, the premises, uh, we're not looking to solve the issue as yeah. the funder. Uh, we're, we're putting faith in the community to do that. And I think, um, I don't even see that as a leap because that's all that ever solves any problem like air pollution locally in the first place. So, so it's an important, it's an important uh, way of looking at uh, addressing the issue is putting the faith in the community and what they need rather than necessarily uh, inserting a solution. Right. And, you know, I think we talk about, we, or I guess in my mind, when I think about solutions to air pollution, 
I think so much about policy, uh, you know, policy solutions to, again, we, we get back to emissions and fossil fuels and energy mix and things like that, decarbonizing. But what are maybe some of the technological solutions, you know, some of the more market side solutions that you've seen and what kind of role can that play? Um, you know, you mentioned apps and things like that that interact with the data. Maybe you have some examples, some examples of success stories that you've seen on that side as well. Yeah, I, I tend to see um, all of these different activities sort of being a, like a multi-stakeholder force that pushes, yes. ultimately pushes policies in the long term. Um, and, and I think I think the data, having data available helps, helps push for that. And I, I would also say, um, before I mention some examples that I think one of the things with air pollution is the, the solutions are often local, um, that there's, ne there's very few uh, globally scalable solutions. I think a lot of the solutions rhyme from place to place, but partly uh, not even necessarily the technical solution, but the, the uh, community solution that everyone can get behind or the, the current state of political will to what's movable and what's not policy-wise or, or um, community will wise uh, is different from place to place. And so I think it's in, in figuring out solutions or helping stimulate solutions. I think the, the very best thing we can do is to scale is to provide this underlying infrastructure that all local communities will need in order to tackle the issue. Um, so with that being said, I think some of the specific activities I've seen that have been successful in communities that aren't necessarily policies themselves or sort of from uh, the, the I guess the, the up down, um, but rather from the, the bottom up is we've seen, uh, and I'm, I'm largely pulling examples from uh, use cases we've seen uh, previously at OpenAQ. Um, so things like people building, they could be um, apps. We've seen one where there was a watch you could wear that kept you uh, engaged with what the, the air pollution was at a given time. Um, I've heard of uh, taxis having information or taxi systems like apps having information about air quality on different routes. Um, and maybe you're more inspired to take, um, uh, walk a certain route if the air is clean or take a taxi. Uh, that's a, a use case that I, I've come across. It's super um, hyper-local, like very, very yeah. local level. Yeah, so totally, interesting. Totally, yeah. totally. Um, there's uh, examples uh, I've seen where definitely like the media take articles. And one of the most common cases we've seen is where uh, when countries, uh, often capital cities, have access to data um, in their community, they'll instantly compare it to, say, Beijing or Delhi, sort of air pollution hotspots. And when the air pollution is worse there, um, you know, it'll make a it'll make a front page article, and that creates uh, a bit of a stir. So again, I, I don't tend to think there's any one golden solution, but there's lots of efforts that, when you have this data open, various groups in the private sector, in the public sector, uh, help create pressure in a community to, to solve the issue, which I do ultimately believe ends up being solved with uh, through policy, long-term uh, policy. Yeah, yeah, no, that's super interesting. And I think we definitely here on the West Coast and in the Bay Area and California have seen that kind of Beijing effect where when we had the fires last summer, um, we did experience those headlines where, you know, the, the air quality in the Bay Area due to the smoke from the wildfires, you know, is worse than Beijing or is worse than Delhi. Um, I think we probably definitely were very well aware of that <laughs> before the headlines were printed, but um, I, I think we all here 
on this coast, we're definitely very aware of that kind of impact. So that's, that's really interesting. Um, I mean, I guess this brings me to my last question or less of a question and more of just um, an, an, an opening, but you're launching a podcast um, yourself. And so maybe tell us a little bit about that and where we can find more information if we're interested. Yeah, um, so for several years now, uh, I've been invited back to university settings to share my work and my career arc, uh, and, and I've, which is very uh, non-academic at this point. Um, and I've, I've been surprised at how uh, interested and I, I'd say thirsty many early career scientists are for examples of, of people doing impactful work beyond academia. Um, and, and that's always surprised me because I know tons of people doing, uh, who, who were scientists originally or trained with a, a science uh, degree and have gone into different spaces. Um, so I, I decided to start a podcast that, that basically invites cool people doing impactful work on who have science degrees, um, interview them about their career paths and just put some more examples out into the world uh, for others to check out. I think, um, at least for me, examples are everything for helping me figure out what's possible in my own life and career uh, and that's that's the goal of the podcast so the podcast is called degrees of freedom um, okay. and you can get it anywhere you get your podcast uh, and we have a website which is exploreus.com you can help support berkeley earth's independent climate science visit donate.berkeleyearth.org to make your tax deductible donation today thank you for listening and for supporting berkeley earth